0: Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit
1: www.iwp.edu.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Professor DeGraphen-Reed. Welcome to the Asian Asian Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. My name is Amanda Wan and I'm the founder and coordinator of the Asian Institute Lecture Series. For those who are new to the Institute of World Politics, IWP is a graduate school of statecraft, national security, international affairs and intelligence. We have a doctor program as well as five master's programs and 18 certificates of graduate study and a continuing education program. The objective of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have a fascinating speaker, IWP Professor Emeritus Kenneth D. de who will be presenting a lecture on 70 years of Chinese Strategic Intelligence Threats. Professor DeGraffenreid has over 40 years of leadership responsibility as a senior national level expert, practitioner, writer, and teacher, in the areas of strategic defense and intelligence policy and operations, counterintelligence and protective security, continuity of operations and infrastructure, cyber, telecommunications and information protection. He has served as a deputy undersecretary of defense for policy, deputy national counterintelligence executive, and special assistant to the president for national security affairs as White House senior director of intelligence and security programs on the Ronald Reagan National Security Council. A retired Navy captain, he he also served on the professional staff of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. He has been a senior group VP of an R&D and systems engineering firm and a VP of a high-level policy analysis firm supporting sensitive USG programs in counterintelligence, telecommunications, and security. As Professor Emeritus at IWP, a graduate school in Washington, D.C., where he developed and directed the first MA degree in Intelligence and Security Studies to be offered in the United States. Currently, he's a Distinguished Fellow in Intelligence Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. Thank you, Professor Dick Raffin-Nui, for joining us today, and I'll hand it over to you.
0: It's a pleasure to be here, Amanda, and thank you for inviting me. Um, it's nice to be back at IWP, um, if only through the magic of our uh, Zoom, and uh, so uh, here we are. Um, I a warm welcome to all of you who are looking in on your Zoom. I just learned uh, from Amanda that a number of my uh, former teachers uh, are in the audience, and so I'm a little sheepish, but I'll okay. give it a shot here anyway. Um, Professors Tierney and uh, Sholsky and uh, also uh, Professor in um, and, and others. So um, I encourage any of you to interrupt me if I get off track here. Um, well, this afternoon we're going to be talking about, uh, it's kind of a, a big title, 70 years of Chinese strategic intelligence threats. Um, I guess the, the summary thing is, uh, there have been 70 years of it, and it's getting worse. So um, I'm going to uh, try to hit some highlights um, as as we go. Um, but I do have to say a few words about, um, in, in truth in advertising here, um, when I was in graduate school uh, in the late uh, 1960s and early 70s, um, One of my professors uh, at Catholic University um, was specializing in um, Chinese communist uh, theory and uh, revolutionary movements. And uh, I was forced to take a number of courses in that, which were, uh, I have to say, looking back on it, quite painful. So um, I uh, am now back uh, talking about China. and there is one incident that I I must confess to. Um, a few years after that, I was working on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, and while I was there, uh, I got um, a number of us got invited to go to Taiwan uh, by a university in Taiwan, and uh, they flew us out there. In those days, you could you could take those kind of junkets, um, and uh, as part of the the visit to Taiwan, uh, we were flown out by the uh, uh, Republic of China Air Force uh, to the island of Kuomoi, which is an offshore island very close to the Chinese mainland. Um, Very interesting because there had been quite a a number of of, uh, incidents there in the Taiwan Straits in the 1950s, uh, which I knew about from reading about them. And uh, so we got out there. Um, it's a beautiful island. They have all the, they grow sorghum there. So everything smells very sweet. But the thing was honeycombed with defensive positions. And um, at one point, um, I I think we're all invited, but I apparently took the invitation. And we launched, um, I launched a propaganda balloon at the mainland uh, The. In earlier times, uh, the uh, PRC and the ROC sent these balloons toward each other, but they had explosives or weapons on them. But by the time I was there, uh, that had changed, and they were just little packages of toys and candy for for children. Uh, So I launched it, um, and uh, a couple days later, in the paper, there was my picture launching this uh, propaganda balloon at, at the uh, mainland. So I don't know whether they remember that, but I suspect they do. So uh, I'll, I'll get on with this. Um, in, in 1949, uh, to the surprise of, of many Americans who had hoped, I think, uh, that World War II had marked the end of major world conflict, the Soviet Union, who had been our ally uh, in in World War II, exploded a nuclear weapon, which turned out to be identical to the bomb that the U.S. had dropped on Nagasaki. And it was identical because the bomb's nuclear technology had been stolen through massive espionage by America's Russian uh, communist wartime ally. And this um, event was one of the events that, threw cold water on on the idea that um, the post-World War II period was gonna be easy. Um, and it, it instead, it, uh, well, it, it ushered in a, um, a new conflict in which nuclear weapons and strategic intelligence operations would be the framework for what would be a, a 50-year conflict between the United States and its allies and the Soviets. But also in 1949, The People's Republic of China uh, came into existence, uh, having defeated the nationalist uh, regime um, who uh, fled to Taiwan um, and began pursuing uh, what uh, has come to be a very similar hegemonic course.
1: um,
0: Also relying, uh, as it turns out, on stolen nuclear weapons design for achieving its own Strategic uh, nuclear capabilities, and also engaging in strategic intelligence activities, um, and um, so I want to go over some of that uh, today. Uh, and first, I want to uh, uh, the, clearly the, the, the Chinese um, foreign policy development um, in during this period was different than the Soviet one, but there are many, many similarities because we are going to talk about intelligence. And in doing so, um, we have to talk about um, the nature of how the Chinese, the People's Republic of China, um, views intelligence. Um, And in many ways it is very similar to the way the Soviet Union did. And to some extent, to the way uh, Russia, post-Soviet Russia, views intelligence, which is not the way America looks at intelligence for the most part. Um, to the United States, intelligence is a um, necessary ingredient of uh, the tools of foreign policy, uh, but it is not at the center of our foreign policy. To be sure, and um, Therefore, the, uh, the organizations and missions of uh, American intelligence are somewhat limited in, in what they are to achieve, uh, but not so with um, the, um, either the Russians, the Soviets, or the PRC. Um, and so I'm going to try to make a couple points about that before I get into kind of tracing some of the events. Of this long 70-year period, um, and while many Americans today, uh, I suspect, are not used to uh, viewing China uh, as a uh, strategic power uh, with with many threats for the United States, and preferring, I think, to see it as a at worst a benign commercial competitor, uh, but In fact, uh, the PRC's intelligence operations and activities um, reflect uh, a much more ambitious national uh, strategic goal, uh, which I think many of us can see now is uh, to uh, help get the People's Republic um, to the point of being the. Number One power, certainly in Asia, but perhaps in the world. And for that, uh, they will, I'm sure we would agree, would use uh, their intelligence um, tools uh, in furtherance of that. And um We generally don't think of that. I mean, we as a United States, as a society, don't think about what we're we're going to advance ourselves into a number one position. Uh, to the extent that the U.S. has achieved uh, that status, um, it was the result of, of the accumulation of other and the drives of other purposes. But uh, I think we see in China a much more purposeful um, and planned strategic effort uh, to certainly to bring China into modern times in terms of technology, uh, industry, economy, uh, military power, and uh, one of the ways that that is done is through the use of their intelligence services. Um, But I think we need to go back a minute and note, and here there is a similarity with the uh, old Soviet Union, the nature of intelligence in a revolutionary communist movement. Uh, when the Soviets uh, uh, took power uh, in what was essentially a coup d'état uh, in 1917, they, uh, the Bolsheviks, had a history of very involved as a conspiratorial revolutionary movement, and they knew all about intelligence operations because they were the target of certainly. Uh, the czarist Okhrana um, secret police, and they themselves, uh, because they were um, trying to survive in that revolutionary environment, uh, used intelligence, excuse me, they <coughs> used intelligence <coughs> more in the way of their secret police would. They had a secret police chasing them, (coughs) excuse me, and uh, they used all of those uh, kinds of techniques uh, that secret organizations did, Um, and that continued. When the Chaka, which later became the KGB, rose to its position of prominence within the Soviet system, that was because it was being used to protect the leadership of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and in um, all of the techniques of uh, the sort of the nastier side of intelligence, were free game uh, to uh, the Soviet uh, intelligence service, um, and um, we see that is true as well in um, in China when. <clears throat> During the uh, rise of the Communist Party in China, um, they were also a um, conspiratorial political movement, revolutionary political movement, which was uh, very much competing with the Kuomintang, Um And uh, almost in one incident in 1927, as I recall, They were almost put out of business, uh, but they slipped the leash uh, a bit and were not caught. And Mao and his fellow revolutionaries went on to fight another day and eventually to win. But um, the thought of of being uh, eliminated, and literally eliminated, um, I think gave both the Bolsheviks and uh, Mao's. Army, uh, the PLA, and his co-conspirators a sense of uh, how important uh, the the tools of intelligence and counterintelligence, secrecy, and uh, penetration of uh, opposition groups, how important that was. This wasn't just a democracy with an intelligence service
1: like the United
0: States it was um, the very life and death um, matter to uh, both of these parties. And I think that goes a long way uh, toward um, coloring the nature of both Soviet and uh, Chinese PRC now, intelligence operations, because that's the history they came from. This, the third piece is that China, different somewhat from then Russia and the Soviet Union, uh, has, uh, because of the nature of Chinese society and culture, they have a strategic tradition going back millennia. Uh, Sun Tzu, well, who talks about a lot of intelligence matters uh, and the importance of deception and, and uh, all of the techniques of intelligence, um, he's as relevant in China today as he was in 500 BC, um, and that's a long tradition. And um, that, combined with the Marxist-Leninist revolutionary movements in, in uh, movement uh, in China, uh, is a big factor in thinking about how. What, a chi- what the Chinese intelligence services look like and what they do and their role within the Communist Party. These are not adjuncts, they're not service functions. They are pillars, uh, as was uh, the KGB in the old Soviet Union. They were pillars of the society and the government because their job in the old Soviet thing was the sword and shield of the party. Their, their job was to keep the presidium of the Central Committee of the Communist Party in power, which is a much different job than the CIA has or the FBI or army intelligence. Um, so that is to be noted. There's a, there's another dimension to the particular histories um, in both the Soviet Union and in uh, communist China. And that has to do with um, And I'm no psychologist, so I can't tell you how big a deal this plays in things. But both the the Stalinist period in Russia and uh, Mao's uh, time and the the great leap forward and uh, the the great people's cultural revolution uh, a few years later were events in which millions of their fellow countrymen died. Uh, you know the numbers are debated today, but uh, during the Stalinist period, it was it was scores of millions, and um, the estimates for uh, the Great Leap Forward uh, in, in the late fifties, early sixties, and then a few years later, the the, the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. Um, the estimates there are of you know forty five million in the first instance, and twenty million of their own countrymen killed. Now, I don't know if that's a factor, but we don't have anything like that. Um, And most of our Western allies don't have a history like that uh, other than World War II. um, And of course, if you go back to World War I, which were terrible bloodlettings, but they were against enemies for the most part um, in uh, in these two instances, the Soviets and the Chinese communists, those were um, deaths that resulted from uh, political decisions of the regimes. And uh, so the, the Chinese communist regime today um, is the regime that succeeded, well, not succeeded, just continued on from uh, those events. And I don't know what all that means for intelligence exactly, but I do think it is a factor um, in in what the uh, the way they are today. Well, um, the uh, Chinese approach to intelligence, therefore, is tied to the party. It is uh, strategic in the sense that um, if you're looking at Sun Tzu, or you're looking at, at what is done has been done since uh, the 1920s uh, within the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, these are absolutely essential capabilities to staying in power. And um, the um, and their names have changed. Uh, there are some good books out now. Um, studies uh, which there weren't a few years ago. Um, I think I mentioned Professor F. Giamatis. He's got his classic book of Chinese intelligence operations, and he's got some new uh, smaller volumes uh, bringing things up to date. Um, and there's a, a fine uh, book uh, by uh, Peter Mattis and Matthew Brazil on Chinese communist espionage at Permer uh, and other associated books that uh, the, the the Tao of intelligence activities and the Tao of uh, deception, uh, which go back into Chinese, way back thousands of years into Chinese uh, um, history, Uh, but the the modern ones take apart and look at uh, the um, actual uh, organizations and individuals uh, in a lot of cases, uh, and we know a lot more about that than we did uh, just a few years ago. So the Ministry of State Security, um, which wasn't created immediately when uh, China came into, uh, PRC came into existence in 1949, Uh, I don't think we see the MSS uh, coming into being until about 1983, Um, but it took uh, all of the parts, counterintelligence and security and all of the uh, pieces that had been there for a while, uh, the investigations department of the uh, of the central committee, um, and uh, wrapped them up into a new uh, secret police intelligence organization.
1: Uh,
0: we have we have here in this country. We've got a you know foreign intelligence service, and we've got a domestic uh, police investigative. Uh, organization the fbi which also does some counterintelligence but we don't have a combined uh, all-encompassing ministry of state security which is responsible for it all and if you look at the new material which i'm not going to have time to to go over these organizational charts and things today um the current chinese intelligence activities uh have proliferated um it's not just the ministry of state security obviously the the defense side which used to be the the second bureau of the pla is now the intelligence bureau of the joint staff department and so uh in the last 20 years the chinese uh, intelligence service has matured and proliferated um and uh, also become more um uh, specific to functions. So uh, the uh, third, what used to be the old 3PLA the that did SIGINT, um, now there's all kinds of organizations uh, within the Chinese government that do that. The important thing, however, uh, that we want to say about all of this is that um, when we look at China as a threat to the United States, Or to the West. um, We're not looking at just an intelligence service. We are looking at an approach to strategic growth on the part of uh, the PRC that encompasses what is referred to as the whole of society approach. Not only do they have intelligence uh, services, um, and they have intelligence officers in the United States who are. Uh, covered as diplomats, but they also have all kinds of other collection and intelligence uh, influence activities uh, from other organizations that run the gamut from private individuals who just are, I won't even say co-opted. they're just encouraged to uh, conduct activities on the behalf of on behalf of China. Uh, in a way that we don't quite see in the West for the most part. Um, we have, there are, uh, any number of companies and, um, would appear, would appear in a U.S. context to be private firms, which are private firms, but they are also at the very same time, um, a element of Chinese intelligence collection and or influence operations. Um, So it's it's a different construct uh, than we see because it is far more encompassing. And so one big, uh, second big difference is the sheer size of of the intelligence capabilities across this whole of society that we see uh, in the PRC. the CIA is a tiny little organization, compared, certainly compared uh, to uh, the MSS and to all of these other outfits, which counterparts don't really exist in a lot of cases in our in our context. Um, and then to that we we have to add what has happened also in the last twenty years has been the rise of cyber. And the Chinese have become very, very good at uh, cyber intelligence operations, uh, influence operations, collection, uh, and uh, disruption, uh, and uh, any number of things. Um, I want to go back though to uh, yet another comparison uh, to the Soviets. It took a long time for the United States government and the American society come to realize the Soviet Union was a, the threat that it in fact was. And one of the reasons for that was that there were a lot of uh, Americans who played down, for whatever reasons, they played down the nature of the um, Soviet threat. And we see that in the case of China as well. We certainly saw it during the, um, you know, at the right after World War II, at the time the uh, civil war was going on uh, in, in China, um, and for time after that, with uh, and this, uh, without putting a political spin on it, this was many cases left supporting individuals, uh, publications uh, that uh, were. Simply um, not taking the threat at the time, let alone now, uh, as seriously as uh, it was warranted, and there was a lot of political fighting about that in the um, in in the 1950s, um, particularly with regard to uh, what were called the China Hands and and all of this, and there were all kinds of political charges that about who lost China and all of these things, which, of course, scrambled and muddied the issue. Uh, But the fact was there were a lot of people who, um, particularly people who had served in China and were not particularly enamored of the Chiang Kai-shek regime um, and who showed at least some tolerance, if not sympathy, uh, for uh, the uh, Chinese communists. And um, that was a factor in probably the uh, intensity with which we, um, as a country, looked at the uh, intelligence threat from China at the time. Um, Now that records have been opened and there's more material available, we know that there was a a steady stream of of successful Chinese intelligence operations Against the U.S., the most famous uh, in those early years was um, uh, a CIA employee by the name of Larry Wu Tai Chin, who had um, joined the started working for the Americans during World War II as a translator for the U.S. Army, and he continued to do that and gradually uh, uh, was promoted and uh, finally went with CIA and was a uh, conscious uh, Chinese intelligence agent until he was uh, unmasked. Um, And he wound up committing suicide in prison while uh, awaiting sentencing, I believe. Um, The, uh, and there had been some other, a number of other important um,
1: Intelligence
0: uh, events um, that occurred following that uh, in the um, in the eighties, um, with the expulsion of uh, several uh, Chinese uh, intelligence officers diplomatically covered, um, who um, were attempting to get NSA material um,
1: and. Uh,
0: The, um, and this continues on until we get into the uh, 1970s, uh, excuse me, uh, into the, from the 70s on into the 80s, when we come to find out, although we don't know how, that the Chinese um, intelligence services had in fact, gotten the plans for every one of the U.S. nuclear weapons designs, uh, which, you know, at least punitively, were the most carefully guarded secrets in the American government. And um, we still don't know how that was done fully. Um, The uh, few years after my other touchings with with Chinese uh, events, I worked with the what was called the Cox Committee, was in the late 1990s, um, a committee uh, of the Congress, a bipartisan committee of the Congress that looked into uh, Chinese um, acquisition of American technology, uh, particularly nuclear technology, but also space and um, computer technology. Um, and uh, this was a major study by the Congress. back. In the days when the Congress did those kinds of things, and um, that was over 20 years ago, and the report, that Cox report, uh, lists an entire uh, agonizing history of how the Chinese were successful in outwitting uh, the United States in all of these areas, and we, it had a the report had a whole list of recommendations it went to the president. Uh, all kinds of uh, potential for getting some of these problems under control, lack of security, for example, at the nuclear labs, the nuclear research labs. Um, and here we are 20-some years later, and that book is as evergreen as it was then, uh, and, except more stuff has happened. And um, so I guess what I'm uh, particularly uh at some page today to to talk about is what what we can do um, at this point uh, given some of these um, efforts by the Chinese. First thing we need to talk about is um, the lack of understanding of what it means to deal with the, with a nation that is ob- operating, if you will, strategically, where it is putting its efforts in terms of intelligence collection, in terms of acquisition of, of uh, technology and all of these other things uh, to advance itself to a position of prominence and, and perhaps probably parity with the United States strategically and politically in the world. Um, Politically, it's a little harder, but uh, certainly the efforts to acquire these uh, technologies and this information um, is a uh, fundamental kind of challenge. And if we don't understand it at that level, which was the point of the Cox report, we don't understand that at at that level, then it's going to be very hard to do anything about it. Um, other than to do piecemeal responses. So our counterintelligence today, for example, uh, remains for the most part um, case-driven. Um, um, there's indications of espionage and the FBI goes to investigate and it treats it as a case, which it needs to do at you to call it the tactical level. But um, at the strategic level, um, there's no indication that we have taken um, this Chinese uh, threat of all of these activities in cyber, uh, in technology transfer,
1: um,
0: in uh, cultural uh, infiltration, uh, that we've taken these seriously at the strategic level. Uh, and that's the that's the precursor of doing anything serious about this. For the most part, the United States hasn't, in its intelligence activities, particularly its counterintelligence activities, hasn't uh, acted uh, in a strategic way. We did for, you know, probably 20 years in the middle of the Cold War, we did treat the KGB as a strategic threat and went after it in the counterintelligence sense strategically um, and um, to some effect. Uh, some good effect, but it's not clear that we have done that um, at all with the Chinese uh, threat. When I was at the National Counterintelligence Executive, um, using this same kind of thinking, um, we said, "Well, shouldn't we? Shouldn't there be a way to to design a strategic counterintelligence effort on the part of the United States?" Um, to thwart what was then apparent uh, to the, the Chinese were up to. Um, and we came up with some ideas. Um, most of them faltered, however, on the fact that in the nature of the bureaucratic government of the United States, particularly in the national security side, um, there's not a premium on thinking strategically Particularly if a particular department or agency um, or bureau feels that that would be taking away from its uh, resources or its prominence uh, or its ability to uh, call the shots in certain areas. So um, when I left that job, we had made something of an effort uh, in in the case of China and. then I was gone from there. And then a few years later, uh, we see what has happened with our, uh, what happened uh, in 2010 and 11 uh, with all U.S. human operations in China got rolled up. Um, This is as bad as what happened uh, with regard to uh, the, uh, our American intelligence ops in Cuba, where they all got doubled by the Cuban DGI, and in East Germany during the Cold War, where the same thing happened. Um, and, uh, you know, one doesn't want to be too critical, but those things, those kinds of, of failures uh, are not just failures of particular times and places. They really reveal a failure to look broadly in a strategic way at what's going on. In part, the problem is doing the case-by-case method as opposed to doing a strategic approach.
1: Um, um,
0: One of the first things we probably need to do is realize that in addition to uh, the United States being a a big target a principal target of Chinese intelligence operations, broadly speaking, the whole of society approach. Um, The Chinese have a very specific problem called Taiwan. And so uh, an enormous amount of their effort goes into intelligence activities, both collection, influence, propaganda, uh, all of the other uh, dark arts of intelligence aimed at Taiwan. And so, that fact needs to be realized in the councils, of senior councils of the government uh, in order uh, to be able, if one wanted to um, mount a strategic counterintelligence uh, response to uh, one would need to say, well, now look, if they're, they're pointed at Taiwan and a lot of their effort is going there, maybe that's an area where we could have uh, some uh, effect uh, with our counterintelligence activities, um, and uh, so another factor, another that we could use in, in our um, effort to do something about this strategy is to um, Fashion the American government to be able to respond to these things. Uh, One reason that we deal in stovepipe solutions is because we're a government of stovepipes. Uh, And uh, in theory at least, um, the idea, the original idea in the 1947 act of the National Security Council was that there would be a place and and a process for bringing these issues together in dealing with them across the government.
1: Um,
0: And um, that, if I had a recommendation to the new administration, it would be that, to take seriously this threat and therefore configure the government in order to do this. Putting one person in charge of something is not necessarily the answer. Uh, but but having a process for uh, defining um, the uh, the nature of the threat, which is an important first step, and then thinking about well, what what does this mean to us? What 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 about the Chinese strategic effort? Is it that's harmful to the U.S. For the Chinese to modernize is certainly not a mortal threat to the United States. In fact, it's it's a good thing. But um, to do it by the theft of American technology, uh, either through espionage or influence operations, or as we covered in the old Cox report, um, the kind of, of just simple corruption uh, of, of buying uh, people uh, to do
1: that uh, is, uh, not, not good. Um, and
0: I th- go to go back to a point that I was making a little earlier. Um, we also need a place inside the government, uh, within the, the administration, uh, to be able to openly and clearly state what um, the uh, the goal of all of this is. Um, I, I mentioned that I thought that uh, there was a lot of political support, certainly in the, in the 50s and, and uh, on what I would say ideological reasons um, for downplaying the nature of the, at that time, the, the Chinese threat. Um, but today, um, that kind of uh, political support uh, is in the form of um, business interests, which say, "Well, look, our interest really is um, in in China, uh, in in the e- economic relations, in trade relations." Um, well, that's fine, uh, but that needs to be um, tempered with an understanding that we are also losing uh, a lot of of American assets um Because we're not we're not being serious about this. Um, one of the and that is one of the challenges this whole of society approach that is done um, to coordinate these things. Uh, when this kind of of problem was first identified or was first addressed back in the Cold War vis-a-vis the Soviets. Uh, there was a whole range of things that were done. In terms of technology transfer, uh, there were uh, uh, diplomatic regimes with our allies, um, the COCOM and and some of these other uh, structures that were created precisely uh, to address it as a uh, international issue, at least from our side. and that bled into the government. Uh, When we were dealing with what was known in those days as Soviet active measures, um, which were Soviet political uh, propaganda and other active measures activities, um, there was an effort made to, one, work with our allies on this, but also uh, to address it in a a broader way. And so you just It's not the job of the FBI alone uh, to deal with those kinds of things. In some cases, it isn't the FBI's job at all, but it's somebody's job. And uh, when the uh, organization, not really an organization, but a coordinating effort called the um, Active Measures Working Group was put together in the mid-80s to deal with that, um, it went much broader than simply the intelligence and security elements of the national security bureaucracy it went to everybody it got you know, from from the diplomatic through the uh, information uh, and and on around um, through the government and that was an effective uh, effective effort it didn't mean didn't stop Soviet acquisition of American technology completely but it certainly did some and um, now the Chinese Effort in that regard is much, much broader. And it would require a creative new uh, structure to deal with that. Um, And it's not a one sided thing. I mean, it does not mean we don't trade with China. It doesn't mean um, that uh, all forms of of technology sharing are bad. But um, it does say look, think about this before you do it. And certainly a situation in which we have today, uh, where we've lost the designs to or had compromised uh, to China, the, all of our nuclear weapons designs, and many, many other weapon systems. Um, that's that needs to be stopped at, in some way. Um,
1: the um,
0: A number of cases, I was going to, I don't want to bore you with all these cases uh, uh, that have um, come up over the, the past few years. Um, a couple of very bad ones were the Chimac case, um, uh, the um, Monteperto case at, at DIA, um, and um, as I, I alluded to, the, the horrible situation, which reportedly, since I don't know anything about it officially, um, the uh, perhaps up to a score of uh, American uh, sources uh, were discovered and executed through mistakes that we had made. Um, And today, um, I think our biggest, probably one of our biggest problem, uh, Apart from the huge and, and variegated nature of the human intelligence threat, is cyber, and um, my sense is that um, the there is some attempt within our uh, NSA and uh,
1: Cyber Command uh, to
0: understand this problem and do something about it. But it's, as we all know, it changes constantly. And it's a it's a race uh, between the offense and defense in all of these things. Um, Amanda, could I take some questions?
2: Thank you, Professor DeGraffman for such an insightful lecture and we'll take questions now. Okay. So if you have questions, please type them in in the Q&A chat box. The first question we have is from Professor Tinnery, Do you believe that China will represent a similar threat to the West as the Soviet Union did, greater or less?
0: Well, I think it's, I'm going to say, I'm, he's my old professor, so I've got to give him an answer, and I'll say greater. I think that um, the Soviets had a number of um, shortcomings in their political system uh, and in what they were trying to do um, vis-a-vis the West, I want to call it that, um, that the Chinese do not necessarily have. Um, and the Chinese appear to have a long-term strategy uh, and it's well thought out. I mean, this is not just Um, a belligerent Stalin, um, or uh, Brezhnev, you know, kind of blindly setting forth um, strategic utterances about what they were doing, the Brezhnev doctrine. This is the the Chinese are much more, I think, thoughtful. And uh, now they've got some, you know, Belt and Road Initiative and and, um, building little islands in the South China Sea and and all of these specific things um, can be outrageous uh, uh, and threatening in their own. But um, they're all they're going somewhere with this. Uh, So I I guess my answer is, I think they're more um, in part because they have this several thousand years strategic understanding um, that I I think they're more of a threat. But it's not, you know, Khrushchev is not rattling his rockets. Uh, We don't see that today, although we have had certain threats uh, about losing Los Angeles to save Taiwan. But I do think um, they're more sophisticated um, and therefore more dangerous. And I think that, that cyber shows that. Um, they're very good at cyber. And um, so I, I, Professor Tierney, I think the Chinese are more of a threat than were the Soviets at a comparable stage in history.
2: Thank you, and the next question is, How are the American leaders deceived by the Soviet Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Party successively and repeatedly? FDR saved Stalin, Nixon saved Mao, Bush and Clinton saved Jiang. Biden will save Xi? Xi?
0: Say the last part again, Amanda.
2: Biden will save the current uh, Chinese president
0: Xi? Um, I guess, you know, it's hard to... (laughs) it's hard to argue against that analysis there. Um, Americans are Americans. And uh, it's very hard for us to be on what I would call a uh, a strategic mission in the world uh, to counter, in this case, the PRC, uh, because there are so many other factors involved. And we do reach out. I mean, the United States does in that sense, uh, and these uh, regimes do get, um, if you want to say red, was the word you use rescued? Um, in a way, they do get rescued, uh, and uh, probably just, you know, a I think my observation of my years in the government uh, is that most government officials, I'm talking about the senior ones necessarily, but although some, they don't feel right about uh, triumphing in a particular political, geopolitical situation. That there, there's always the, the thought, well, we, we need to leave these guys a way out, we need to do this. Um, and I think uh, that, you know, I'm not sure what motive, which which part of the American political psyche that represents, but I do think it is uh, very, you know, much uh, a factor. I don't know how much, but a factor in why it seems that uh, the communist regimes um, get let off the hook, if you want to say that. Although ultimately they don't get let off the hook, but um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. yeah. It's a question of, of, you know, we have, I think, an innate thing that, that our goal is to turn adversaries into friends uh, and friends into allies. Well, if you're up against somebody that that's not their goal, um, they they can have a certain advantage from that. that I, I think the, the questioner is correct in that. If you looked at one way, um, the U.S., did not do everything it could. Um, you know. Now, certainly in the case of um, uh, the PRC, uh, I mean, the United States spent years and lots of treasure trying to save, help save uh, the nationalist uh, KMT regime uh, over and against the communists. And we, they weren't successful, and, and we weren't successful in an effort to do that.
2: Thank you. And the next question is from an IWP professor. This question is, what is your assessment of China's continued efforts to establish Confucius Institutes on American academic uh, premises? And uh, the follow-up question is, you also mentioned that the U.S. was not adopting a strategic policy as regards countering the Chinese threat. Wasn't it the job of NCIS to come up with a strategy?
0: Yeah, save that second one. Let me get through the first one. Uh, For the uh, CI Institute, Confucius Institute, I I do think that those are, um, and of course, the reason that that's such, in one sense, a dangerous uh, technique, dangerous to us by the Chinese, is there's a lot of good that comes from those things. But if those are used uh, for, in effect, Whole of society influence operations on American campuses. Then you know we have a right to think about that and decide. You know, is the good we're getting worth the bad we're getting? Um, and um, I would have to say that, uh, from what I know, and again I'm not been in the government a while. In a while, um, the Confucius Institutes are on net a, a dangerous thing. And I think the last administration tried to do something about that, um, and um, I, I think there were problems. Give me the the next one's a little trickier. What?
2: Sure. Um, so the second one was you mentioned that the U.S. was not adopting a strategic policy as regards countering the Chinese threat. Wasn't that the job of NCIS to come up with a strategy?
0: In part, it was, and I think I alluded to the fact that some years ago, um, when I was there, we were actually trying to do that with regard to what the NCIX had, which is is kind of a more limited perspective, but one having to do with all counterintelligence, which is a pretty big perspective, but that is not the same as a national policy, uh, a la, for example, the containment policy. That grew out of the uh, uh, National Security Council um, debates of the, the NSC 68 or whatever it was, um, a, a more formal uh, adoption by the US government, broadly speaking, of a Cold War strategy of containment. Now, I know that's subject to all kinds of interpretations and. A lot of people thought, well, the containment strategy wasn't all that effective, but there was an instance where it it was that that was more than a pure counterintelligence uh, task. Um, But you're right, the NCIX should have been doing that. Um, And as I say, I can at least assert to you at one point, we were trying to do that. The problem with the NCIX, which is often a problem within the American government, is that for what may be the most wonderful of reasons, many of the departments and agencies and bureaus did not want to cede any of their authority and or resources to the NCIX saying, I mean, the FBI's answer was, well, we we do counterintelligence what are you guys telling us, you know, what's NCIX got to do with? And of course, from a bureaucratic point of view, I understand what they're saying, but in terms of trying to take a strategic approach, um, the Bureau's vision, the FBI's vision of what good counterintelligence and effective counterintelligence against the Chinese, does not automatically equate to a strategic approach to counterintelligence, vis-a-vis the Chinese intelligence. Um, it's a more limited thing. And when the Congress wrote the, uh, the Counterintelligence Act of in 2001, or 2002, that established the NCIX, the idea, the kernel of idea there was precisely to, have a place where you could deal with develop and deal with and promulgate a national counterintelligence policy um, the a lot of the departments and agencies did not want to did not want to do that and um, it was very hard uh, to to achieve that and I think just a footnote here and I'm not being defensive but you will notice that the mission of the national counterintelligence executive, which is now, names been, name's been broadened, because the, um, the, the, everything but the smile on the cat has disappeared. Uh, counterintelligence isn't what they do anymore. They do security things, all of them important. They do uh, a, a bunch of other related activities, which in a perfect system would all be done but the idea of focusing on counterintelligence, which was the purpose of that bill and that law, um, has disappeared. Um, Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to get too hot about that one.
2: He's actually asking, so would you assess NCIS as a failed effort?
1: Well, I I think if one is
0: judging by the plain words of the I'm getting my numbers wrong here, but I think it, the, the the statute was the National Counterintelligence Act of I think maybe 2002 might be a more accurate number. Um, it was written in 2001. Um, if you judge it by what it is written in the plain words, yes, it has not. It is not. It has failed in that mission. It may do some other things. And there have been other good things being done, and there are probably good things being done this afternoon, but um, it, is not, it did not produce a national counterintelligence strategy worthy of the word strategy. Now, the first couple of written strategies were pretty good. It's just that nobody, the, the, the elements of the counterintelligence community did not want to buy into that. They wanted to do what they wanted to do, and um, so,
2: sorry. Thank you, and the next question is, given the current political climate uh, both stateside and globally, the recent events, do you think professionally and personally that China could succeed in becoming the world power? If so, do you think Russia would alter their allegiances, policies to pose a threat to the U.S. or the West?
0: You repeat the second part. Well, let's try that one more time, man. I'm trying to.
2: Given the current political climate both stateside and globally, the recent events, do you think professionally and personally that China could succeed in becoming the world power?
0: Well, um, it, it's certainly on its way to becoming a world power. Um, being the world power is a pretty tall order for anybody, even the U.S., which I think didn't seek that position, but sort of got it as a result of, of a variety of factors. So I don't know necessarily that it's going to become the one-for-one thing. Uh, as I think the second part of your question, uh, there is Russia, uh, and there is the United States. I mean, the United States has not folded its tent. I've You know, I've indicated we we have ways to go in dealing with the strategic threat, particularly in the intelligence area, which, in the case of China, is a very broad area, much broader than it is to us. Um, But um, we haven't withdrawn from that struggle. Uh, I noticed the new uh, uh, DCI uh, ambassador Burns; uh, he's got an article out. about how to you know countering China, and it's got a whole bunch of of sensible tough things to do. Um, so you know, the United States it, it is not withdrawing from the Pacific, and as we've seen in the Taiwan uh, area and, and in the Straits, um, South China sea, East China Sea, um, the United States has not withdrawn from that. And in fact, we're you know, making sure that our presence is known there. Uh, and so I think, you know, the Chinese are, they're on the make, if you will. Uh, and, um, and, and given that that has a societal dimension to it, it's very powerful.
1: Uh,
0: in my few visits there and talking to Chinese about this uh, subject, um you know there are many chinese who who want China to be the number one power. They may not necessarily be um, died in the wool, you know, Marxists uh, and supporters of the current regime, which in some cases, privately they're not, but uh, they are uh, they like the idea of China being number one. and, uh, that's a, big, that's a big deal in, in all of this. But uh, just wanting that and just doing the things that the Chinese are doing, um, it doesn't necessarily have to come to be. And particularly uh, if, uh, you know, what actually that means. If I mean, you know, having China as a, a major power does not necessarily mean that that's a threat to the United States. It's only a threat to the United States if it's a threat to the United States. And um, so there's, there's a lot of room there. Uh, did I waffle that answer well enough, Amanda?
2: <laughs> I think so. We okay. actually have a question from IWP President uh, Dr. John Lynchowski. He says, okay. <laughs> too many former cabinet members have been directly or indirectly on Beijing's payroll helping American businesses to open doors in China. These figures are key to downplaying the threat from the CCP. Is there a way to prevent this kind of work, perhaps by legislation?
0: Dr. Lenczewski is certainly correct that there are an awful lot of people on today, Americans who are on, in one form or another, China's payroll. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're putting their finger on the scale in the wrong way. But it's still an ominous situation. I don't know how one, I mean, legislatively or that, you know, prevents that. I mean, it's a free, you say it's a free country. You know, if you want to go to work for a Chinese firm, uh, I think, you know, and advance their cause, that's, you know, that's every individual's choice. But there's certainly a lot of that going on. I I talked to one gentleman who was at a meeting and he said, he looked around the table and he said, I realized I was the only one who wasn't on the Chinese payroll. And he was at a fairly senior level of a corporation. And what he meant by that is that many of the other people around the table in one form or another were getting support, uh, financial and otherwise, from from the Chinese. where this is clandestine or covert or hidden, I think that is a place for legislation. I mean, and, and for enforcement. Uh, and we've seen that at several universities where uh, there come a couple of recent scandals uh, where professors have not uh, declared the fact that they're getting, you know, massive amounts of money uh, from a Chinese entity. Um, well, why are they hiding that? Well, they're hiding it because it's embarrassing to them. And um, so I think the those rules, and I'm not an expert on those by any means, could be tightened up a, a bit. But, you know, it's, it's a free country. You want to go to work for the Chinese? You know, it's hard for, we. I don't think we as a country can say no. But um, it's it's a little too uh, convenient now to uh, receive support from the uh, People's Republic of China, which you know seems innocuous, uh, or may seem, or you can argue that it's innocuous, but it really isn't. You're not innocuous. You know? it's, you're getting a lot of money from somebody, which is why we have in generally in our law. Uh, laws and procedures, the appearance of conflict of interest, not just conflict of interest, but the appearance of conflict of interest is a a factor. And uh, I think in some cases, people have gone way over the line uh, in the, well, the hidden appearance of conflict of interest. Thank you, Dr. Lenchowski.
2: Thank you, Dr. Lenchowski, for joining us today. (laughs) And the next question is, do you feel that the character and nature of Chinese intelligence efforts against the U.S. has changed? Has changed in the last few years, and if so, how? One more time, Amanda. Sure. Do you I'm, feel that the character and nature of Chinese intelligence efforts against the U.S. has changed in the last few years, and if so, how?
0: I, I, I would, would but. About a Professor F. Yadis and some of the other experts, um, but um, I do. I mean, I, I think uh, the, well, first of all, the intel- Chinese intelligence operations are more ubiquitous, and, and they're in, di- you know, all different kinds of places. Um, are they more sophisticated and polished uh, than they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, probably we saw that with the KGB. Uh, you know, it used to be the case in the early days of the Cold War that your, your standard KGB guy was kind of thuggish, to put not too nice a spin on it. But by the end of the Cold War, they had very, very sophisticated uh, intelligence officers, um, both in terms of influence operations and in terms of of recruiting of of spies and running spies. Um, I I would suspect that if, you know, people that deal with this on an everyday basis would say the same is true for the MSS and the uh, uh, people from the, uh, whatever it's now called, the the old uh, 2PLA, the military intelligence. Because, I mean, one of the things about these regimes, communist regimes, is they got a lot of intelligence services and not just one, They, and, they the, and that goes for Russia today. The GRU uh, has a whole set of activities, illegals, uh, all kinds of activities that mirror what is being done by the SVR and the FSB. So they, they, those are three major Russian outfits that are out there causing trouble. And I think that's true in the case of the, the Chinese. And, you know, the, the Chinese, uh, the, the Ministry of State Security, there is this, and I don't know, I, I, again, about a professor about this, but at least a few years ago, the the various provinces also ran their own intelligence operations. like, you know, Kansas would have its own intelligence service, Uh, and and the big one is the Shanghai State Security Bureau, uh, traditionally from, because of the diplomatic nature and the position and everything, but um, they, you know, they have, you know, wholly owned subsidiaries of of people doing things, and, you know, one of them is dedicated, of course, to Taiwan, uh, but there's just a lot of, of intelligence outfits. And so in that sense, uh, not only is it probably more sophisticated, there's just a lot more of it. And uh, we, you know, does that necessarily mean it's better? No, but they've been pretty effective. And it's certainly the case that it does not appear that, it, it, it certainly appears that their counterintelligence has successfully blunted American collection activities. Now, You know, I I think American intelligence still knows a lot about uh, what's going on in China, uh, particularly with weapon systems and uh, and, and cyber capabilities and others. But um, you know, I I suspect our human operations are not all that keen today. Uh, I know one thing: when I was back in the, I think I can say this when I was back in the in the business that uh, because we agreed. Uh, to uh, in the case of terrorism, we agreed to cooperate, uh, you know as we do with other nations in counterterrorist events uh, uh, activities. And so we agreed to do that with uh, the People's Republic of China and the MSS, and um, you know we I assume pass things and they pass things. But the issue there, of course, is that their idea of counterterrorism, namely against their own Uyghur population, is not what we would call terrorists. Uh, I'm not falling back on, you know, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist, but um, so that became a problem for us. And then it also became a problem because uh, there again, the the Chinese were not above using the leverage. And and by the way, the same as the Soviets with regard to counterterrorism. Um, both, and the Russians, let me update them, all of those outfits were more than willing to leverage our attempts at cooperation in the field of counterterrorism with getting their way in other areas and probably blunting things that they didn't want us doing. Did that answer that? I hope that answered that.
2: Sure. And the next question is from Professor Efemietis. Why yes. has the USG been unable to marshal a response to China at a strategic level? Is it even possible for us to effectively counter China?
0: Well, I'll answer the second question. It's the easy one. Is it possible? Sure, it's possible. Uh, is it likely to happen in the foreseeable future? You know, I. Realistically, I don't see it. I mean, look, there was, in this American democracy, there is a political dimension to the things that we do in these things. And it took a long while. That was what I was alluding to at the beginning. It took a long while for the United States politically to decide that Soviet intelligence and the KGB and all of the associated activities Was something that we really wanted to be against. And even then, uh, you know, there were people on what I would say the left side of the political spectrum who mm, they really didn't want to do that. And so, uh, you know, you have to marshal a certain critical mass of political opinion, public opinion, uh, among the leaders uh, in order to get you know, a national, if you want to call it for a democracy, a national strategy, even in this limited area. Um, Eventually that happened with regard to the Soviets, although it was never uh, 100%. We had people, um, American politicians, who who would thwart attempts uh, to do effective things in what I would call in this context, strategic counterintelligence vis-a-vis the Soviets, uh, particularly in the area of uh, uh, technology transfer. That was a hard thing to do and it was never done perfectly, but um, there was political opposition, not in the sense of, you know, waving a political banner, but certain senators and certain members of Congress and certain members of the media Trying to put the brakes on those things uh, for for whatever reasons, but um, they they did, and you know, going back in time, there were the whole crew of people uh, that uh, Professor Ken Gore, up the road uh, or down the road from here, but up the road from there, wrote about dupes and fellow travelers and and a whole uh, taxonomy. Of people who became effectively supportive of the Soviets, particularly in in these kinds of matters. Now, probably not as many as time went forward, but at one point that was a big deal. And um, it was a big deal during the uh, 1930s. We're, we're, we're talking here. with got to China with technology transfer. One of the um, the the. The big things that happened in the 1930s is the United States willingly transferred technology after the recognition in 33, willingly transferred technology to the Soviet Union, but also had a heck of a lot of it stolen. More than is probably realized certainly at the time, but even today, people don't comment on that much, but those who have gone back and looked at that, that was a huge deal. Uh, of of getting um, advanced technology to the Soviet Union, and I think there were a lot of people. Uh, there were a number of people, certainly who who favored doing that uh, in in the American political system, and a number of them did it. And look, there were a whole bunch of people who went to the Soviet Union um, as volunteers to help the Soviets with their, you know, becoming a great power. Um, and um, of course, under Stalin, a lot of them never came back. I mean, it, was, it wasn't a, a pleasant outcome for them. But they they went over there, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and all idealistic. Um, but there was also just a lot of stuff stolen. Um, you know, we don't make a big deal of it today. And then pretty soon, you know, we were allies, and it was lend-lease, and and all of that. But even there. The Soviets got a lot of of mileage, literally, but they got a lot of stuff out of Lend-Lease because there were a lot of people involved in the process who wanted them, you know, wanted to help the Soviets.
1: Um,
0: So I I think that the political context on some of these things matter, uh, to be sure. If we're going to see Professor's question: If we're going to see a strategic uh, response to the Chinese strategic um, effort to become, you know, a great the a one of the great powers or a great power or a great power in, in its their own backyard of Asia, um, which is a
1: big backyard. Um, we're
0: going to have to um, come to some general agreement uh, about this. And I, 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 I'm not optimistic about that. I mean, we've got a lot of problems in doing that. One, our com- country has become uh, polarized in its political views and in kind of a gut reaction way. If, you know, Republicans say one thing, the Democrats don't like it. I mean, it's just gut reaction. Uh, when I worked on Capitol Hill with Professor Shulsky and some of the others in your audience, uh, and it wasn't all that many years ago, um, you had it wasn't a, everything was not a strict party line vote to be sure. In fact, on matters of, of intelligence, you you had a um, you know conservative democrats and liberal republicans and you had all these different varieties and they would come together on one issue and then on another issue they'd be you know not in agreement but it was a much more representative of what one would think in the school book, school textbook case uh, is kind of the way it should be today it's just very bipolar uh, and i mean that in both sense of the word um, uh, and, uh, you know, that's hard to get agreement on anything. You, you know, the simplest thing today you can't get. I was giving a lecture last night, actually an IWP. Was it last night or the night before on FISA? And somebody said, well, you know, why hasn't that been reformed? And, you know, you've got all of these things that you need to do. Well, because you can't get, you know, a Republican and a Democrat to sit down and address the issue apart from uh, their intense dislike of each other.
1: Anyway, right.
0: So that to me, uh, Professor, would be that I, you know, but is it possible to do it? Sure, it's possible to do it. And, you know, Americans have done it before, and it uh, sometimes though that takes the sense that um, you're in deep trouble and um, with regard in this case to what, you know, I think some of the Chinese activities. Chinese activities don't necessarily need to be as threatening as they are to the U.S., um, but since they are, we can't ignore it.
2: Thank you, Professor. And due to the limit of time, um, we'll just take one more question. Okay. Um, this- is actually a series of questions. Um, do we need to reconstitute something like the old USIA to deal with the United Front Works Department efforts to distribute its propaganda and increase its political influence throughout the world? Would it be possible to create a new USIA? How could it harness the tremendous amount of soft power that is possessed by the US media, entertainment, universities and et cetera?
0: Well, this is a you know a very tender question right now, since you know the previous administration attempted to make some reforms in the entire uh, area of information, official U.S. government information, um, and the first thing that the new administration did was to fire everybody and reverse those things. So, um, I, you know. Do we need to do that? Absolutely, but again, the reformers, some of whom are friends of the institute, uh, Dr. Bob Riley, uh, went back into government um, in the last, you know, in the last year, uh, precisely to do this, and uh, he and. Uh, the gentleman who was the head of the whole, whatever it was called now, um, you know, they were run out of office on the very first day. So um, there's another example of, of the extreme polarization. And, and we do need uh, an American government uh, coordination and strategy with regard to information and the radios and, the, and all of that stuff. Uh, we fought about those things in the government for years, um, partly political and, and in some cases uh, just bureaucratic, but um, that's a glaring need. And if, you know, particularly with regard to the uh, People's Republic of China, uh, we need that. And I, I'm, I don't want to, this is not a political commentary but um, I'm very disappointed with the, the new administration. So you know, the first thing they did was get rid of the people who were, were in there trying to fix the, the situation at uh, whatever the, OMA or whatever the new name is. That's not a helpful sign in my view. That's just my view.
2: Thank you, Professor DeGraffenried, for such an insightful lecture today, and thank you, everyone, for raising so many important questions. Um, I'd like to share the AILS upcoming event on April 14th with Dr. Patrick Cronin. He's an Asia Pacific Security Chair at the Huston Institute, and he'll be presenting uh, about his report on fear and insecurity addressing North Korean threat perceptions. Again, thank you very much, everyone, and I look forward to seeing you all on the 14th of
1: April.